So we're going to begin with literature. And our guest today is Professor Bob Blue, who is interim head of the Department of Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. He came to Penn State in 2001 after um, many years at University of Kansas. He has published three books, The Development of Calderon's Comedias, Comedia, Art and History, and Spanish Comedies and Historical Contexts in the 1620s. Please help me welcome Bob Blue. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, Linda, for inviting me. I'd like to start out with a couple of remarks about the two genres I'm going to be speaking about, Spanish theater and Spanish prose fiction. In this period, theater was the principal popular literary genre throughout the late, late 1500s and all of the 1600s. The Spanish comedia, as it was called, was in full flower. I want to give you some idea of the number of plays that were written in this period. In 1604, Lope de Vega, the man who invented the Comedia form, which is a three-act play written in verse, each act being about a thousand lines long, makes a list of the full-length plays he's authored by this time. He's 42 years old, and he comes up with 448 works. He lives to be 73, and he writes plays right up to his death. A reasonable estimate of his production would be around 800 plays. Tirso de Molina wrote about 400 comedias. Pedro Calderón de la Barca, whose best known play is La Vida Sueño, or Life is a Dream, wrote about 180. And there were a lot of people writing plays in this period. One scholar puts the total production from the 1580s to the 1680s in the range of 10,000 full-length plays. In prose fiction, the big event, of course, was the publication of Don Quixote. It was published in two volumes, the first volume in 1605, the second in 1615. Volume one was reprinted six times in 1605 and 11 more times by 1617. It was translated to English in 1612 to French in 1614, and to Italian in 1622. In this period, from 1600 to 1625, five of Spain's greatest early modern prose writers are working, three of its greatest poets, and nine of its greatest dramatists are all writing for, uh, for production in this period. And one of those, whose real name was Gabriel Tellez, his pen name, as I mentioned above, was Tirso de Molina, wrote a very good play whose protagonist has passed into legend, literature, and the arts. That character is Don Juan. There are, according to a specialist on Don Juan, at least 500 literary versions, 70 musical versions, 25 paintings and sculptures, and eight films based on Don Juan and his stories. I want to talk about the original. He first appears in a play called El Burlador de Sevilla y Convidado de Piedra, that is to say, The Trickster of Seville and the Stone Guest, written in the 1620s. Tirso's Don Juan 
is not particularly good looking. He was neither a sensualist nor particularly interested in sex for sex's sake. And he's certainly not an intellectual. He's the scion of a very noble family. His father was the favorite, a kind of prime minister of the king of Spain. And his uncle holds a similar post in the service of the king of Naples. He's clever, spontaneous, glib, and can spot another person's Achilles heel in a trice. Central to the play's action is his identity as burlador or trickster. And the prime focus of his tricks is on women. And in the play, he deceives four. In Naples, where the play begins, he disguises himself as the Duke Octavio and tricks the Duke's beloved Isabella into bed. In Tarragona, in Spain, he tricks a fisherwoman, Tisbea, into having sex with him after he promises to marry her. In Seville, he nearly tricks another noblewoman, Doña Ana, into bed by disguising himself as her beloved, the Marquis de la Mota. But she discovers the deception just in time <coughs> and saves her reputation. In a small village then, called Dos Hermanas, a few miles south of Seville, he tricks yet another peasant woman, Aminta, again with the promise of marriage, into breaking her just-given marriage vows and sleeping with him instead of her new husband. His name is Patricio. And there are references in the play to other women, ranging from prostitutes to noble women who've fallen prey to Don Juan's deceptions. It's generally held that the four seductions are important both internally and externally. Internally, they provide structure and dramatic rhythm to the play as Don Juan tricks a noble, a peasant, a noble, and yet another peasant in such a way that each seduction dramatically and logically follows the other. And the play makes women his primary focus because women were central to the patriarchal honor system. Thus, Don Juan reasons, to trick a woman and leave her dishonored not only ruins her reputation, but that of her family, her parents, her siblings, and her husband as well. Don Juan respects neither the conventions of his own class nor the rights of the peasantry. Each of his tricks infringes on other aspects of the social codes since his offenses are more than sexual. In Isabella's case, she's the one in Naples where the play begins. Since Don Juan tricks her into bed in the king's palace, sorry, his act is an affront to the king as well as to one of his friends, Duke Octavio. In Tispea's case, he violates the law of hospitality. She's taken him in and fed both him and his servant after they both nearly drowned in a shipwreck. And in payment, he steals her honor, her horse, and sets fire to her house to create a diversion so he can get away. In Doniana's case, she discovers that he's not the Marquis de la Mota before going to bed with him and cries for help. Her aged and very noble father, Don Gonzalo, comes to her aid and attempting to defend both his and his daughter's honor is killed by Don Juan. And finally, in Aminta's case, she and Patricio are at their wedding feast when Don Juan intervenes and manages to trick her into bed and in so doing, profanes the marriage sacrament. 
One would think that would be quite enough, but one would be wrong because Don Juan tries to trick God. Throughout the play, various characters try to warn Don Juan that there will be a day of reckoning, for he frequently swears to God that he will keep his word about this or that. Near the end of the play, he promises marriage to Aminta, swearing that he will be her husband, and stating that if he breaks his word, may a man strike him dead. And then, in a smirking aside, adds, a dead man, of course, please God, not a live one. To every frequent warning about the possible consequences of his promises and actions, he responds with a set phrase, que largo me lo fiais. That's a perfectly understood sentence in Spanish, but it's hard to render into reasonable English. What it literally says is, how long you trust me for it. What it signifies basically is, I have a long time ahead of me before I have to pay that debt. Don Juan is playing fast and loose with God's patience and mercy. So God takes him up on his oath to Aminta and has a dead man kill him. How could Don Juan have gotten away with all he did all by himself? How could this one young, arrogant man throw all of society's conventions back in its face? Well, the answer is he couldn't. He had a lot of help. For instance, he couldn't have gotten into Isabella's room in the palace in Naples if she hadn't invited him and opened the door, thinking all the time, of course, that it was the Duke Octavio. And she wouldn't have done that if Octavio hadn't seen their mutual love as a necessarily long, formal, drawn-out courtship that would eventually lead in marriage, and he keeps postponing and postponing and postponing. He has turned her and him into actors in a socially prescribed, stricted, and restrictive drama. Don Juan couldn't have escaped the palace if the king had done his duty and arrested and punished Don Juan. Instead, he turns the matter over to his favorite, who happens to be Don Juan's uncle, and who, putting family above duty to the king, permits Don Juan to escape. In Seville, he wouldn't have tried to trick Doña Ana if she hadn't invited the Marques de la Mota, her secret beloved, to come to her house that night to enjoy her favors. And she did that because her father promised her hand in marriage to someone else without ever consulting her and was unaware of the secret love between his daughter and the Marques de la Mota. When Ana discovers Don Juan, she shouts for help and while trying to escape, Don Juan kills Don Gonzalo, her father. Don Juan couldn't have tricked Aminta away from Patricio if both she and her father were not starry-eyed social climbers who see Don Juan's rather late proposal as a ticket to the palace. Don Juan's irreverence in the face of authority then is not all that surprising given the abdication of responsibility by those who hold power. Thus, Don Juan's empty promises, promises made with no intent whatsoever to fulfill the letter of his word, are parallel to the hollowness of the king's commands, to the threats made by his uncle and his father, and to the statements made by other men and women who supposedly observe 
and underwrite society's law. There's no one in this play who can be held up as a moral or ethical example to the rest. Well, nobody human, anyway. Not the kings, not the simple rustics, not the younger generation or older generation of noblemen, not the women either. Not even Don Gonzalo, who dies defending his daughter and his honor because instead of asking for forgiveness for his sins and requesting salvation, he ends his life swearing vengeance against Don Juan. After being run through, his last words are, I'm dying, there is no good that lasts, my fury will follow you forever. The king, however, raises a statue to Don Gonzalo in remembrance of his contributions to the state. And Don Juan, passing through the cemetery one night, invites the statue to dinner. The statue takes him up on the invitation, which should have been early warning, and in turn invites Don Juan to his tomb to dine with him. When Don Juan goes, the stone guest, now the stone host, feeds him scorpions, snakes, spiders, and bile, saying, these are our dishes, which perhaps gives us an idea of where he truly is. Takes Don Juan's hand <coughs> and summarily drags him off to hell, refusing to give him time to repent or beg for mercy. There follows a final scene where, principally through the women's efforts, all the deceived characters unite in the King of Spain's palace complain about Don Juan, to learn of his death, to sort out their lives, and to unite in couples in mat as, as couples in matrimony. What motivates Don Juan? What he says he wants more than anything else, what drives him to do all the things he does, is the, de is the desire for fame. The word fama in Spanish means more than just renown. It connotes honor and public opinion as well. When the stone guest invites Don Juan to dine, Catalinon, his servant, advises him not to go. But Don Juan insists, saying that tomorrow all Seville will be astounded by my valor. He wants to impress everyone regardless of the means. He does not distinguish between honor and infamy. And seduction emphasizes what's at stake in promising and in breaking the promise, as well as in speech in general in this period. In another play, from about the same time as the burlador, one character reacts to the offer of a written contract. He says, documents, papers for me? Treat me more like a friend. Since my sense of personal nobility has greater trust in you than in your paper. Giving one's word constitutes nothing less than the commitment of an individual to uphold the common interest of that society in which a promise is more binding, more valuable than a legal document. Breaches in the accepted linguistic economy are nothing less than threats to the wholeness of the social fabric in a society in which one's word is one's being. Don Juan's words and actions undermine the authority on which that system depends. 
Let me briefly turn to Don Quixote and then come back to Don Juan for some final observations. If Don Juan is a young, rich, adventurous, outrageous son of a noble and powerful and influential family, Don Quixote, or better, Alonso Quijano, is a 50-ish poor member of the lowest rank of nobility, an Hidalgo, who lives an utterly predictable life in a small town whose name the narrator refuses even to remember, lost on the dry plateau of La Mancha. There he lives with his young niece, a housekeeper, and a farmhand. He has a lot of time on his hands and gives himself over to reading literature, namely chivalric novels. So many does he read, and in fact, the narrator tells us that he spent his nights reading from dusk to dawn and his days reading from sunrise to sunset and with too little sleep and too much reading, a lesson for us all, his brains dried up and he lost his mind. And so it seems perfectly reasonable and necessary to him, both for the sake of his honor and as a service to the nation, to become a knight errant and set out righting all manner of wrongs and by ending those wrongs, win eternal renown and eternal fame. It's hard to know specifically what to talk about in this novel of several hundred pages with well over a hundred characters. I'm going to limit it to book one. Throughout the first volume, many of the adventures revolve around women. And if you've read the book, some of these names will sound familiar. Marcela, Dorotea, Lucinda, Zoraida, Clara, Leandra, Camila, and of course that central figure, Dulcinea del Toboso. And as in the burlador, women are seen either as objects of desire or obstacles or creation of men's fantasies or symptoms of their conflicts. But in the end, it's the women that put that facile characterization to the lie as they rewrite the stories of their own fragility or of their own deceitfulness or helplessness. In chapter 11, Don Quixote and Sancho find themselves out in the countryside at, as night nears after one of their first adventures in which Don Quixote has saved a damsel in distress, a woman who he believed was being kidnapped and taken away in a coach by some evil magicians. In the battle that ensued, Don Quixote has lost part of an ear and is hurting. They run into a group of goat herds who invite them to rest and share their meal. And after dinner, Don Quixote rises and delivers an oration known as the Golden Age Speech. Here's part of it. Blessed the time and blessed the centuries called by the ancients the Golden Age, not because then the gold which we in our age of iron so value came to men's hands without effort, but because those who walked the earth in that time knew nothing of those two words, thine and mine. All things were shared in that holy age. Everyone was at peace then, everyone friendly, everyone living in harmony. Simple, beautiful country damsels, their hair braided or worn round their heads, roamed from valley to valley in that time and from hill to hill. Then they spoke their thoughts of love from the soul, simply and unpretentiously, exactly as they thought them. Truth and simplicity were unmixed with fraud, deceit, and malice. 
Damsels in decency both walked everywhere, as I have said, either alone or chaperoned, unafraid that impudence and lust might attempt to menace them. But now, in our era of abominations, none of them are safe, though we hide them, lock them away. <clears throat> and for their protection, as time went on and wickedness grew, the order of knights errants was established to defend damsels, shelter widows, succor orphans, and those in need. My goat herd brothers, I am one of that order on behalf of whom I thank you for your kind welcome and generous reception according to me and my squire. Don Quixote contrasts an idealized golden age with the iron age he lives in. Women, he declares, are no longer safe today because greed and lust have broken the bonds of humans and nature's perfection. Women, afraid and alone, are the damsels in distress he believes he must protect. The detestable age is the age of plenty, of unity, of mutual care and concern. Don Quixote, then, is the wanderer, the seeker trying to find a means of return. And it's not surprising that throughout the adventures in part one, he seeks to protect women by stopping the abductions, as in the case mentioned above. However, the damsel in distress that he saved before dining with the goat herds was in fact a woman going to Seville to meet her husband, who was there to embark for the Indies. Thus, she is neither a damsel nor in distress. She's a member of a new class of people who will become successful and wealthy in an economy based on conquest, colonization, and the acquisition of wealth. In one of the longer and more complex adventures in part one, Don Quixote and Sancho encounter a wild man lost in the woods. His name is Cardenio. He was driven to the woods, he tells them, by a deception, a trick played on him by his supposed friend, Fernando, the son of a very powerful duke. According to Cardenio, Fernando stole his beloved Lucinda, and apparently she betrayed Cardenio's trust as well by agreeing to marry Fernando. And therefore, he finds himself in the woods and mad. After a while, two of Don Quixote's friends who've come searching for him meet Cardenio, and the three of them subsequently meet a woman named Dorotea, disguised as a man and alone in the woods. As novelistic happenstance would have it, she is the beloved of Fernando, who seduced and abandoned her. She's a peasant, but not a common peasant, a smart, educated, wealthy, very accomplished one who ran her parents' extensive agricultural holdings. She was, as many of Cervantes' heroines are, exceedingly lovely, so much so that she attracted Fernando's interest. In short, he seduced her, but not before she extracted a marriage promise. And in this, she was a bit better at it than Tisbea or Aminta. She brought in a witness. <clears throat> but he left anyway, and stole then her, uh, left her and stole Cardenio's beloved, the also beautiful but noble-born Lucinda. Don Quixote's two friends, the priest and the barber, from his hometown, along with Cardenio, promised to help her try to regain Fernando. And in the process, Cardenio could regain Lucinda. 
They explain what's happened to Don Quixote, and she promises in turn to help them bring him back to his home with the goal of curing his madness. To that end, she will take the role of Princess Mikomikona, a damsel in distress. Dorotea therefore stands at the structural center of at least four plots. Her and Fernando's story, the interlaced story of her, Fernando, Cardenio, and Lucinda, the story of the efforts to bring Don Quixote home, and the story of Don Quixote's quest to rescue damsels in distress. Dorotea's tale is parallel to Tisbea and Aminta's story in the Burlador, one of a peasant who would rise through marriage to the ranks of nobility, that is to say, it's a story of social mobility. As Princess Mikomikona, she tells Don Quixote that she's come from her far off land seeking his aid to rescue her and her kingdom from a giant who threatens her utter destruction if she'll not marry him. And in turn, she promises marriage to Don Quixote if he will save her and her kingdom. All of these characters, again by novelistic chance, meet at an inn where Dorotea forces Fernando to honor his word to her. And it turns out that Lucinda also, much more resolute and strong than Cardenio, has forced Fernando into a corner. These characters return to their former pairings, and Don Quixote, in a dream state, believes that he's, that he's battling the giant Pandafilando and that he kills him, thereby rescuing the princess Mikomikona. In reality, he's attacked and slashed two huge wineskins, which is why his, his room is running in blood. <clears throat> in the end, Don Quixote turns down Princess Mikomikona's offer of marriage and riches, much to Sancho Panza's great distress. He turns her down because of his undying love for Dulcinea. He believes that it's through the strength of his mighty arm that he's rescued the princess. But in fact, she and Lucinda have rescued themselves and shown the men involved to be perfidious in Fernando's case and cowardly in Cardenio's. These two stories of love and marriage are tied to wealth and status, as are, the ones, as are many others in book one. And Don Quixote's idealism is shown to be a dream, shown to be out of step idealistic but absurd in a new world of nascent capitalism, of trickery, of broken promises. But on the other hand, this new world of money and, social open, and the social openings it brings challenges the older closed aristocratic order providing opportunities for the daring. Don Quixote attacks the abuse of power on the one hand but exercises power and authority, for example, over Sancho, on the other. Sancho doesn't want to listen to another speech by Don Quixote, the one he offers the goat herds, and he tries to leave. Quixote grabs him by the arm and forces him to sit and listen. Don Quixote is part of the power structure he alternately attacks and defends. At one point, he rails against the justice system and frees some condemned prisoners, and thereby becomes a criminal himself. He sallies forth to defend maidens and orphans while abandoning his own young unmarried niece. He warns and stops those who would pursue the independent Marcella, but then goes after her himself. He decries the abuses of nature, 
but sells off parcels of his own land to buy more books. He renounces Mikomikona's offer of money and status in order to strive for fame and the opportunity to marry Dulcinea and through that marriage attain money and status. In the end, there's no going back to the Golden Age. Both El Burlador and Don Quixote approach a common problem from what appears to be quite different angles. Don Quixote looks at his society and finds it wanting. For its values, he substitutes ones derived from an idealized fictional world that never existed and tries to live out those ideals to gain fame and the rough and tumble reality of his time. Don Juan looks at his society's values and finds them confining, stultifying, perhaps even a sham, since there's no one who embodies them. In both cases, the protagonists seek fame and renown by escaping their society's rules, by flaunting them. But in both cases, the protagonists are bound by the value system they both attack. What we see reflected in both works is a period of transition in which the older order was called into question, where its shortcomings are revealed, but where a new order is not yet fully formed and so cannot simply substitute for it. What we watch is the characters struggle as they attempt to make their way through their own moments of change. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you.